a high quality diet. So this was a diet that's more rich in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and fish was one of the main protein sources they were looking at or low quality. And those eating or eating a hundred grams of unprocessed red meat per day was associated with a 93% higher risk of ischemic heart disease amongst those with the highest diet quality. Yeah, it was basically double, almost double the risk. Entrolactone. So this is a breakdown product of lignans, which are found in flax seeds being one of the, the major sources of that. The reason it's such a good marker is that we don't make it. The only reason it's in your body is because you ate it or you consumed something that was broken down into it. There was a 30% lower risk of all-cause mortality and a 45% lower risk of cardiovascular mortality when comparing high levels to low levels. That's crazy. And, and again, the only reason that's there is because you ate these foods. Welcome back to another episode of The Proof. I'm Simon Hill, your show host. And today's guest is Dr. Matthew Negra. If you're a regular listener, you'll be well aware of Dr. Negra. He's been on the show a handful of times now, bringing clarity to topics such as plant protein and soy foods. Dr. Negra is a naturopathic doctor devoted to helping people better understand what healthy nutrition looks like, both on social media and in his clinic in Vancouver, Canada. Are plants trying to kill us? Is Dr. Nagra biased? Is there a single optimal diet? Does eating fat make you fat? Do phytates rob our bodies of minerals? Should we all avoid gluten? Is a low-fat plant-based diet the best way to do a plant-based diet? We discuss all of this and plenty more. Before we get into the episode, a quick reminder to please subscribe on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning in from. Your support is greatly appreciated and enormously important to this show finding its way into the ears of more people. And now, my conversation with Dr. Matthew Nagra. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. 
two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. How was the workout at Gold's this morning? It was good. It was good. It's cool. I've wanted to go there for ages. Was it so. first time? First time. Well, yesterday was the first time. Today was bigger second. than you thought. Yeah, there's. I heard that that whole front open area is brand new or something. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely added. But I'd really only seen videos of that back blue mm-hmm. wall. You know that that famous one from the Game Changers mm-hmm. and all of that. We got a photo there. Yeah, <laughs> for the for the memory bank. Uh, we're gonna get into some cool stuff, and you've been on the show two or three times. Five times, I think. Five (laughs) times. Uh, So, you know, most people know who you are. And there was phenomenal feedback from from those episodes. People were really, really appreciative of everything that you came on and and shared and all the the great work that you do on social media, clearing up uh, a lot of confusion. Well, that's the goal, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Busting a lot of myths. And I'm actually interested, though, before we get into some of these different topics, I get asked a lot on emails and DMs from people who are kind of aspiring to to get to a position like you are, where you're helping patients, but you're also online communicating science and looking through a very evidence-based lens. What can you can you share, I guess, with regards to your journey and and sort of the events that have unfolded that have led you to that position that you're in now? Um, yeah, I, I think it really started with my personal health journey. And when I was, you know, 14, I was, um, you know, struggling with asthma. I was overweight. Um, you know, actually one point I had a really serious asthma attack. I'd be put on oxygen and I was kept in the office for, for I think over an hour, hour and a half, something like that. And, um, it was once I started to shift my nutrition that, you know, I, I started losing weight. Um, I started breathing easier, whether that was connected or not. I mean, I mean, maybe there's a little bit of debate around that, but um, that's what led me to wanting to dive further into nutrition. And then within a year, my dad had a you know cardiovascular issue and, and um, you know, a minor, if you can call it heart attack. Um, and he um, also in the years following, was really confused about nutrition and and what to do and and uh, he started working with someone who really dove into that topic and uh, helped him change a lot of it i think i helped a lot too on the way as i started to learn more um, and since he's turned that around he's you know improved all his biomarkers he feels better than ever the anxiety he had around his health is, is largely dissipated and so as i went through school i had the goal of wanting to help others kind of do the same thing and and improve their health um, and now fast forward, you know, seven, eight, nine years, um, and we're in a place where it's not just 
the people one-on-one -on -one that you're helping. It, it's um, all of these messages that you get, that I get, the comments, you know, from people confused online uh, about this stuff. And I find that if we're able to disseminate this information to them, maybe we're able to, to help, you know, a large number of individuals, maybe not, again, that one-on-one -on -one context, but at least help tease through some of the misinformation and provide some clarity for them. And so that's really the goal is just to help with that sort of confusion that I once had and my dad once had. And you studied naturopathy, is that right? Yes. Yeah. And I actually, in undergrad prior, I got a bachelor's in microbiology mm -hmm. where I also studied some nutrition. Okay. What's the difference between naturopathy and or naturopathic medicine and sort of allopathic, mm -hmm. I guess, maybe uh, conventional yeah, Western yeah. medicine it, it's often described as? What would the main differences be between those? Um, I, I think that does depend a little bit on where you are. So uh, depending on you know, province to province, state to state, there are different sort of regulations. In North America, anyway, the education is largely the same. And the, you know, the first couple of years probably mimic a lot of what you would learn in, in conventional medicine. I actually had some uh, people I went to school with who were medical doctors and then went that route. And they did say there was a lot of similarity in the basic sciences, you know, the chemistry, biochemistry, biology, et cetera. Where there are some differences is we do learn about pharmaceutical therapy. I do prescribe. I know that's a, a common um, misconception that we're like anti-medicine or something. That's not the case. Um, perhaps not as in-depth as they do. We can't prescribe everything that they do. We also don't have as much training in emergency medicine. Yes, we can do things like CPR and, and whatnot if, if needed, but certainly don't work in an ER. Um, but where uh, other differences come in is we do have a lot more of a focus on nutrition. We learn some other modalities like physical therapies, actually. So I do work with people, injuries. And I know you have a physiotherapy background as well. Um, and then even some you know, nutraceutical supplementation, herbal supplements and whatnot as well. I'm not super convinced on a lot of the evidence around that stuff personally. But, uh, um, but I think there's actually a lot more similarities uh, than most people realize, at least from the accredited schools, um, where there are, of course, some differences in the, the mentality around it and what sort of uh, treatments we, we learn more about. We're going to go through a bunch of different claims. Um, and maybe I'll do this in a sort of true or false way. And we can step through them and you can help us unpack them. But before we kind of get to those at a high level, why do you think there is so much confusion? Why do you think that the, the average person would, or do you think the average person would find it difficult to determine what a healthy diet is? Um, I think, especially with social media, the access to information is, is so you know, broad at this point, everybody has access and, you know, anybody can be an expert and we have podcasts with, you know, millions upon millions of followers who are, you know, listening to a lot of the information being put out there. And I think it's just that you have people with certain beliefs, whether that's because they adopted a certain dietary pattern and improved their health in some way, or at least subjectively, like in the short term, improve their health in some way. And they, they then believe that's the answer. And I can, you know, I can understand that to a degree. I, I feel like I had that early on as well. Um, of course, now I'd, I'd say I'm much more objective in the way I evaluate research, but it, it's certainly it's compelling when you make a change and you feel so much better. Um, and then you hear from others that they've experienced the same thing and you want to believe that that this is the way, you know, so to speak. Um, I, I think that's really it. You have, you have individuals like that with large platforms 
you know, preaching their stories. They're great storytellers, a lot of them. And then um, others who maybe have had a similar experience or tried something that they recommend felt better, um, they'll, of course, believe it or, or, you know, then the next day they hear conflicting information and then they're confused again. But I think that's sort of where it comes from. We can get a bit lost in our N equals one anecdote. Yeah. And, and forget that that's uncontrolled and not necessarily the same result. Well, two things. One is we may be attributing our result to the wrong thing. Yeah. <laughs> and secondly, the result that we got from whatever we did may not be something that's re- replicated for everyone else. Exactly. Yeah, and that's what the research is for. We'll Have you to. heard of Dunning-Kruger effect? Yeah. Yeah, just kind of the... Oh, people tend to over... Um, what's the word? Or they, they think they know more than they do. and um, Particularly at the beginning when yes, you learn something. Yes. So there's a very steep uh, uh, learning curve at the beginning of delving into a new topic. Mm-hmm. And... In that early phase, you can sort of become overconfident. Yes, that's the word I was looking for. And so your your confidence actually never returns to that level. Even as you study for years and years and decades, um, you know, often the people that are dedicated and continue studying start to realize how much they don't know and then humility sort of comes in. And even though they're actually gaining more knowledge over the years, their level of confidence and how they talk about that topic doesn't get back to that very initial mountain of, of confidence that they, re- that they reached. Well, yeah, you get, like, I mean, I get these comments, I know you do too, where people say like, this is wrong or this is that, or, um, you know, they're very direct and, and very confident in their, their claim. But then you hear an expert um, talking about, you had Mark Messina on the other day, or at least I listened to it the other day, and, and he's talking about like, you know, this may be something, or we don't quite know at this level of exposure what the result is, or, you know, it's that more cautious sort of language that I don't think we see when you're first learning about the topic and you become, you know, overconfident in your position. You mentioned beliefs mm-hmm. and one of the, the, the true or false statements that I have for you is Dr. Matthew Nagra, Nagra is a biased vegan. And you also mentioned before being objective. So True or false, is Dr. Matthew Nagra a biased vegan? I would say, yes, I have a bias because I am vegan. You know, I would prefer that we didn't use animals for, you know, the purposes that we do. But does that mean that that um, affects my objectivity when it comes to talking about the literature? I don't think so. I can look you straight in the face and say that fish is a health food. The low-fat dairy can certainly be a part, a regular part of a healthy diet. That small amounts of red meat aren't going to hurt you. But when it comes to the environment or, or ethics, I think that is problematic. Um, and I can be honest about that too. But where I really think it's, it's sort of ironic is I tend to see more bias in people who claim to not have a bias. And I've seen that a lot. I've, there's a lot of people online who kind of hide behind this you know, I'm not biased because I'm an omnivore. I eat meat. I eat plants. I don't, you know, I'm not in the keto camp or carnivore camp. I'm not in the vegan camp. Um, and, uh, you know, to claim that you don't have a bias, I mean, I don't think anybody is totally free of bias. I think everybody has a bias. We all eat. We all have to eat. We all enjoy certain things. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, <laughs> yeah. I'm not affected by any sort of bias, you're probably very much affected. 
Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I would just have to ask this individual, do you, or what's your favorite food? You know, I can just ask something broad and they might say, oh, a nice ribeye or something. Well, do you, so you enjoy eating meat or um, perhaps it's, it's on the plant-based side. So you enjoy eating that. The fact that you get enjoyment out of that means that there's probably some level of bias there. And to claim others are biased, but not recognize your own bias actually has a term. It's called the bias blind spot. And that's something that comes out a lot. I get called biased all the time by people who claim to be free of bias. And, and I think that is, is just really shining through in those cases. Um, but uh, uh, I think you have to recognize your bias first before you can even you know, set it aside and address it. Right. You know, so I go that extra, yeah, I try to go that extra mile of like, am I looking at this through a bias lens or not? You know, how can I be objective about this? Whereas if you don't even realize you have a bias, how do you do that? Right. We're much, ideally, we're much better off if objectivity mm-hmm. is the goal. We're much better off if our biases are operating within the window of awareness, not outside mm-hmm. of. Exactly. Um, and you'd be familiar with Melanie Joy's yeah. work on looking at, you know, often you hear veganism, it's an ideology. Yeah. And it's almost said as if it's the only food ideology, yeah. right? But her work sort of puts forward the fact that actually the dominant food ideology is called carnism. And one of the sort of interesting, I guess, uh, facts about that ide- ideology is that it is mostly invincible because it is the dominant ideology, so it's not really questioning if you follow that ideology because it's not challenging or questioning something because it's accepted as the norm. Most people are not aware that it even exists. Yeah, that I, I would 100% agree. Okay, so you're saying that you do have a bias, but when you review the evidence, you're aware of that. So talk us through your process. So when you when you go and look at nutrition evidence, what are you doing to keep that bias in check? So I, I try to review any piece of literature, whether it is something, you know, based on the title or abstract appears to be pro my position or, or anti my position. I try to just review it all the same. You know, I'll, I'll go through the method section say, okay, how did they conduct this study? What are, you know, potential concerns? How did they track food, you know, intake, for example, did they do it sequentially? You know, every, like the nurses health study and health professionals follow up every four years. So you don't just say, yeah, they use the food frequency, frequency questionnaire, this this study is garbage. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm looking at how did they do it? What um, covariates? Like, did they look at exercise, smoking, etc.? Um, uh, you know, then what are the results? Is there anything that conflicts with our pre-existing um, knowledge on the topic? If so, why might that be? Try to figure it out. I think that's another thing that gets thrown out there, and, and maybe this is sort of a tangent, but um, people will say, "Well, oh, you know, there's conflicting information all over the place. We have one study saying this, another one saying that." When in 99% of the cases, you can explain it through, you know, the type of adjustments they made, through the type of population you're looking at, where they may be a sick population or healthy population, how long the follow-up was, what is the difference in meat intake? For example, if people um, will cite data out of like uh, somewhere in in Asia saying, look, high red meat consumption was not associated with cardiovascular disease. Well, yeah, they ate like a piece of meat every two weeks. So so high and low were all (laughs) very low. Exactly. Um, and so there's there's explanations for these things, for these differences between the findings um, that you know, are pretty explainable. There's explanations that are pretty explainable yeah. if yeah. you're trained. And I think one of the problems with food is that 
because we all eat three, four, five times a day, we feel like we're an expert. Yeah. But I would say, you know, a lot of a lot of people that are putting out information about nutrition are not always equipped with those skills of going through the research at that level. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. The other thing that is important, you may have mentioned this, is converging lines of evidence and the evidence hierarchy. What is the strength of that data? And are you seeing different types of study all pointing into the same direction? Yeah, I, I agree. That, that's another thing, um, especially with LDL cholesterol. And, and I know ApoB, as, as you discussed with Dr. Dayspring, being a, a better marker. What a guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was entertaining. It was an entertaining listen. Uh, um, I love the bit where he, he started talking about going down into the uh, into the intestine and interviewing yeah. cholesterol. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you can tell he's he's been at it for a while with the like how he's able to just pull stuff from from textbooks he'd written decades ago. It's like, yeah. oh man, he's a classic. Yeah, he's done a lot of stuff. But but like just going back to to what we were saying there is is that the converging lines of evidence. We have animal models. We have human data with you know randomized controlled trials using all sorts of different classes of medication and diet, um, all showing that you reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease by lowering LDL and how much you lower your LDL cholesterol de uh, determines how much you lower risk. There's just no way that's due to other factors. And even with that evidence, I think we also have to accept that evidence will not be perfect. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of this is looking at, okay, what's the alternative hypothesis and what's more likely based on the imperfect evidence that we have across different levels? Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay, speaking of alternate hypotheses, true or false, plants are trying to kill you. I'd say false because if that's the case, they're doing a pretty bad job. Did I do a good impersonation? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'd say pretty good, mind you. I haven't listened to quite as much of the content as you have, so maybe it's not burned into my memory as well, but... Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, uh, obviously you're, you're talking about uh, Anthony Chaffee, Chaffee, I think that's how you pronounce his name, um, and uh, his view on you know, polyphenols and phytochemicals uh, trying to kill us. And um, you know, a lot of that stems from this paper by Bruce Ames. This was a paper from 1990. And you know, in that paper, they determined that, about, actually it's in the title of the paper, 99.99% of the pesticides that we're exposed to, these things that are meant to, you know, kill insects and pests, are naturally found in the foods that we eat, largely in plant foods. And now his conclusion, uh, Chaffee's conclusion from that, is that, well, yeah, these plants are trying to kill us because they're full of all these, you know, natural chemicals like the polyphenols and whatnot. But there are, you know, several issues with that. For starters, in that paper, they explicitly say that fruits and vegetables are healthy. Uh, they say that they're consistently associated with great health outcomes. And their ultimate conclusion, in fact, this is right in the abstract of that paper, is that because most of our exposure to these potential pesticide-like compounds are naturally in foods that are actually healthy for us, then the synthetic pesticides that make up this tiny fraction of what we're exposed to probably aren't a problem. So it's actually arguing that these chemicals broadly are probably not an issue for us, um, yet it gets spun into this, this concern around those, um, those chemicals that are naturally found being toxic or, or harming us. And, and there are 
so many issues with that sort of conclusion because that's largely based on like cell culture studies or rodent studies or um, you know again looking at the impact on insects which is essentially what they're and also with where the exposure on a milligram per is kilogram basis yeah, is not very, something that humans would be exposed yeah. to through diet. Yeah, exactly. We, we would not be consuming anywhere near that amount. And again, the foods are health promoting. But what's really interesting is that polyphenol consumption, whether it's from things like coffee, tea, fruits, uh, vegetables, is very consistently associated with, with great health outcomes, lower risk of cardiovascular disease, lower risk of total mortality. This is what we need to look at, the actual health outcomes in humans. And in fact, there's some really, really strong data on a particular um, metabolite of, of a polyphenol called entrolactone. So this is a breakdown product of lignans, which are found in flax seeds, being one of the, the major sources of that. And the reason it's such a good marker is that we don't make it. The only reason it's in your body is because you ate it or you consumed something was broken down into it. Um, and highest consumption in this meta-analysis of, of uh, studies looking at levels found that um, there was a 30% lower risk of all-cause mortality and a 45% lower risk of cardiovascular mortality when comparing high levels to low levels. That's crazy. And, and again, the only reason that's there is because you ate these foods, not because you're genetically producing more or something because we don't produce it. Higher polyphenol intakes also being consistently associated with lower risk of Alzheimer's dementia as yeah. well. Yeah, and there's some really cool studies on like berry consumption, mm -hmm. whatnot, improving you know some some markers right. of cognitive function. Yeah, uh, even, not necessarily, even clinical yeah, trials. Yeah, exactly. Not not necessarily um, uh, as it relates to to Alzheimer's, but even just acute. You know, yeah, in, in the short term. Yeah, I printed out that paper because I thought it would come up, and just to to kind of emphasize what you said, here's a direct quote from the Ames paper yeah. caution is necessary in interpreting the implications of the occurrence in the diet of natural pesticides that are rodent carcinogens it is not argued here that these dietary exposures are necessarily of much relevance to human cancer indeed a diet rich in fruit and vegetables is associated with lower cancer rates has that ever been quoted <laughs> that was conveniently left out uh as was i will say and the reason I said plants are trying to kill you in that that kind of uh, fashion, I certainly wasn't mocking Anthony Chafee. That is a it's a video that's gone viral. It's titled uh, uh, "Plants Are Trying to Kill You," and it has I think five hundred or five hundred and fifty thousand views by this stage. And something else within that. So, uh, Dr. Chafee cites the Ames paper. And leaves out that critical information that we just went over, which is the dose, how much are you exposed to through diet, and also what the main takeaway from the paper was. And he also cited the World Health Organization's website where they talk about natural plant toxins. And he used this as evidence to say, see, even the World Health Organization are aware of this. But he left out again a very important paragraph from that page that he shared that says in a usual balanced diet the levels of natural toxins are well below the threshold for acute and chronic toxicity which i think is important yeah 100 uh, percent. i mean all of uh, the fact that these points are being left out but he's aware of these papers is, is also like questionable as far as like you know is he just you know purposely leaving this stuff out or, or you know what's I don't know. It, it's upsetting, you know, to to think about it that way. Yeah, it seems like he's 
had an anecdotal experience and seen other anecdotal experiences, maybe you can comment on this, why someone who adopts a, he he only eats meat and water, but why someone who adopts a diet like that might experience some benefits. To me, it seems like he's trying to attribute that to the removal of of toxins, but there could be many other reasons. Is, is that something that you've thought about? Yeah. Um, so he's like, when you're removing basically everything, you know, from your diet, except the, the meat and, and certainly you're removing ultra processed foods. If you were having any, it's kind of expected that if something was bothering you and you remove it, you might feel better as far as your gut function. Maybe you had some like IBS like symptoms and you remove some, some foods that you're having problems digesting. That could be something. Um, if you're eating a really heavily, you know, processed food, it's, it's possible that, I mean, the meat's going to be a lot more nutritious than probably some of that stuff too. Maybe you were running into issues that way. I don't know what his history was in particular, but there are plausible explanations for why someone might feel better in the short term. At the same time, that doesn't mean it's going to be great in the long term. And I think that's where there's an issue. I mean, we can look at a lot of things, smoking being one where people can actually feel better in the short term. Um, you know, it, it might calm their nerves. It, it can help with weight loss. It can do all of these things that, that um, you know, in another context might be viewed as good. But we know based on all the data, epidemiological or observational data, I should, I should clarify, um, that smoking, you know, leads to high risk of lung cancer, total mortality, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. So um, I, I think we're focusing too much on these short-term changes, which it's great that somebody has improved in that way, um, but while forgetting about or trying to make excuses for why it won't be a problem in the long term. Right. And, and also overlooking that there are protocols mm-hmm. that have been tested to help someone who perhaps does have food intolerances mm-hmm. settle symptoms, identi- and then through a, a sort of reintroduction and challenging protocol establish well which ones are maybe are causing some issues that they're intolerant to which ones are not and then reintroducing foods they can tolerate to increase compounds like fiber that we know are associated with good long-term health yeah yeah absolutely there's obviously like low fodmap diet there's all sorts of other elimination diets that have been more well characterized and um, someone can work with a professional to walk them through that the other thing that i always think about with this this idea that plants are trying to kill us is that and and in that video dr chafee goes on to sort of insinuate that he thinks the metabolic cardiometabolic conditions like type 2 diabetes and obesity etc are being caused by these compounds in foods like broccoli and brussels sprouts and he names those foods and others um Going back to our alternative hypotheses, I think there's much stronger hypothesis, hypotheses to, that exist to explain why there are so many cardiometabolic conditions. But it, just on his, on the notion that you can blame these foods for type 2 diabetes and obesity seems ludicrous given the actual average intake of these foods across population is negligible. Yeah, yeah and, and when you think about, especially naming some of those diseases like type 2 diabetes where it's like, I mean, in the U.S., again, I'm Canadian, but I think in the U.S., it's coming up to half of the population has diabetes or type 2 diabetes or prediabetes or something in that ballpark um, at this point. Are half of them overeating broccoli and Brussels sprouts and, you know, those types of foods? I don't think so. You know, I think it's much more plausible that they're eating the McDonald's and the, you know, that sort of stuff. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, 
you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Next, true or false. Unprocessed red meats do not increase risk of cancer or cardiovascular disease. That is old science. Um, I would say false based on the best available evidence. Now, um, where that often stems from is there is this Canadian study, um, the Alberta Project or Tomorrow Alberta Project, something along those lines, um, where they looked at red meat intake and they separated processed and unprocessed red meat, which is great. I think most studies should do that. Um, and then they looked at what does you know a high versus low red meat intake do to cancer risk, whether you're eating low, moderate, or high fruit and vegetable um, diet or, or intake. And they found that in the higher um, red meat intake, uh, or in, in those eating the most red meat while also eating the most fruits and vegetables, there was not a statistically significant increase in risk of either all cancers combined or um, a combination of 15 specific cancers uh, that they were looking at. They, they weren't looking at individual cancers though. And um, since there wasn't a significant increase in risk, some people will claim that, well, there's no risk. 
right? There's just no risk to, to eating um, unprocessed red meat in the context of a fruit and veg or fiber-rich diet. And there are like several layers of issues with that. For one, claiming that there's no risk isn't really accurate because all that means is that the result wasn't statistically significant one way or another, right? When we look, when we get a result from a study, let's say, you know, as I just cited um, with the entrolactone, you know, 30% lower risk of all-cause mortality, that was sort of the, the average finding from that collection of studies in the meta-analysis, but there's a range, a confidence interval that's given. So the true value could be higher or lower. It, there's a range there. If that range covers no risk, then we say it isn't statistically significant. Um, and so just on a technical level, saying there's no risk isn't quite accurate. There could still be, there could not be. It just wasn't detected in that study. Um, but some bigger issues are that, well, in those eating the most red meat, when you compare them to those eating the least red meat, we're talking about two, two and a half servings or so a week. You know, and where we most consistently see an increase in risk of, of certain cancers like colorectal cancer is around 100 to 150 grams per day. Right? So a big, big difference. We're talking a serving plus per day, not just two or three per week. On that note, this was looking at a combination of cancers. It wasn't looking at the cancers that are most consistently associated with you know, red meat consumption. That would be like colorectal cancer being one of the primary ones. So what if it's the case that red meat did increase colorectal cancer, but then fruit and vegetables lowered risk of other cancers? Then your overall result is going to be null. It's not going to appear like there's much risk there. Um, and so uh, there's, yeah, those issues. And then at the same time, it's only talking about cancer. What about cardiovascular disease, the number one killer or other issues? Why are we saying that there's no risk when it wasn't even looking at other health outcomes? And when we look at research on that topic, so there was one study I know we've discussed uh, previously where they stratified diet into a high quality diet. So this was a diet that's more rich in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and fish was one of the main protein sources they were looking at. Um, and or low quality, um, uh, low diet quality. And those eating or eating a hundred grams of unprocessed red meat per day was associated with a 93% higher risk of ischemic heart disease amongst those with the highest diet quality. Now, again, talking about the confidence intervals, like I had mentioned. 93%. Yeah, it was basically double, almost double the risk. And, but the confidence interval was quite wide, meaning the true risk could be lower than that. It could also be higher than that. But the fact of the matter was there was a significant increase in risk. So why are we ignoring that because of this one study on this collection of cancers that suggested there wasn't a significant increase in risk? Well, because we like eating meat. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I think I mean, the answer to that's pretty simple. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but, but it's just like we have reason to believe and this data is consistent. And even in the epidemiological or the, again, I, I got to start saying observational because for, for those listening, epidemiology can encompass randomized controlled trials if they're looking at like disease outcomes and, and markers as well. Um, but when we look at the observational research on red meat consumption, even on processed red meat consumption, it adjusts for fruit and vegetable intake most of the time or diet quality anyway. Um, and so those factors are largely being considered in most of the research that we have on the topic. So th there is just a lot of issues and it just seems to me like that is largely bias playing into it. What about the Global Burden of Disease Study, Dr. Nagra. Have you seen that? Oh, you mean the burden of proof? Burden of proof. Yeah, I was like, global burden, Sorry. I think, says red meat's a problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's so. right. It's no, <laughs> yeah. burden of proof. Yeah. Wrong burden I got there. Yeah, yeah. But the, you know, the, the paper that came out yeah. maybe 12 months ago, I think if someone was sitting here who was trying to argue the position of 
unprocessed red meat not being a problem, they would challenge you with that study. Yeah, so this was um, a large analysis that came out, you said roughly a year ago, it might even be a bit less than that, but but somewhere in, in the last year. And it was a, a meta-analysis and they were looking at uh, various um, outcomes. So one of the health outcomes was colorectal cancer and they did find that 100 gram per day, again, that kind of threshold I was mentioning, was associated with a higher risk of colorectal cancer, uh, statistically significant. So we should, I think, be taking from that that, yeah, there was still an increase in risk in, in colorectal cancer. But they did something really, I think, odd in their methodology, how they came to their conclusions about what is considered a weak association or no association or, or you know, stronger association, is that, again, we have these confidence intervals, this range of values. They took essentially the bottom of that. So, so the result would have to be you know, significant one direction or another. And then they took the very bottom, lowest possible value almost, not quite. From the confidence for, interval. From, from the Can bottom. you explain yeah. to someone who's never heard of a yeah. confidence interval yeah, yeah. or an effect size, what is yeah. this? So, so let's, let's say we have a value. We'll, we'll just go, again, I can't recall the exact numbers, but I'm going to make them up for colorectal cancer. Let's say there was a 20% higher risk of colorectal cancer per 100 grams that you consume. Um, now, that will come with some sort of confidence interval, this, this range. So let's say the confidence interval was anywhere from like the 10% mark to 30% mark, just to make it easy. So 20% is right in the middle. That's what we're saying the value was that was found. And that tells us that you know the true value is probably in that range. It doesn't mean that it's 20% right on. It could be less. It could be more. But if that is not crossing that no effect line, we can be confident that there is an effect. That's essentially what I mean. I hope you think yeah, that's yeah. clear enough. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, so what they did is they took the bottom of that range of the possible values. And in the case of, say, colorectal cancer, it was statistically significant. So it was still suggesting an increase in risk, but they went further. They then made these cutoffs, these cutoff values. If that number, and again, I'm making these up because I can't remember the exact numbers, but let's say if that bottom number wasn't at least, you know, a 10% increase in risk, it's considered a weak association. You know, it's probably not real, essentially. Um, if it was above, you know, 20%, 25%, then it's considered a moderate association. If it was above like 50%, think about that. The bottom of that effect, at least a 50% increase in risk to, to, to consider it a moderate effect. Uh, again, uh, somewhere in that range. Then, um, then, you know, so for red meat and basically any health outcome, they were ranked like weak, essentially as far as associations and so they're written off as like no association well no that's like the lowest possible value suggesting a small increase in risk with the highest possible value increasing a much higher or suggesting a much higher increase in risk um, and the same thing applies to vegetables they did the burden of proof study for vegetables as well and almost every outcome was considered no or weak association there was only one um, association that was moderate and that was for type 2 diabetes so why not apply that same logic to vegetables, um, you know, if you're supporting, say, the burden of proof findings and say, well, um, yeah, uh, you know, vegetables, they might help with type 2 diabetes, but they aren't going to help with anything else. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't make sense to, to take one, but not the other. Right. You'd have to hold both yeah. views, which maybe some people. Yeah, I, I think there's some people <laughs> listening who do, but, but yeah. Um, okay. Well, someone's listening to this yeah. thinking, just tell me what the safe amount of unprocessed red meat is. What, <laughs> what can I eat? each day or uh, on average over a week where you think it would be a safe level of consumption. It's not increasing their risk of colorectal cancer, cardiovascular disease. 
I I think the safest level is probably, well, I mean, zero can be one of those options, but I think up to about two servings a week, 200 gram or so servings per week. Per week. Yeah. I And the reason is, so there was analysis by Zong. This was looking at uh, six prospective cohorts in the US. Excellent adjustment model, great range of intake. So low intake was quite low. High intake was you know, at least close to that 100 gram a day mark. Um, and they found in the dose response analysis that two servings per week did lead to a, a small increase in risk of, of mortality. So um, that's something to consider. And then we have research on the Adventist uh, cohort as well, um, where they tend to have very low meat intake overall. Um, and they found that when you consider like low meat intake um, to you know, say no meat intake, uh, there, there was, you know, roughly a I can't remember the exact number, but a small increase in risk, again, around the two servings a week mark. So that seems to be, you know, probably the cutoff for what I would say is, is you know, totally safe. But then the risk isn't going to be great a little bit above that either. I think once you get into a serving per day is where you're most consistently seeing those associations. So 200 grams is, yeah. that's one sort of fairly large serving a week. Yeah. Or average serving yeah. a week of a steak or something. Yeah. Um, do you ever get pushback on on you just mentioned the Adventist studies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you ever get pushback on food frequency questionnaires? Are they reliable, Matt? Isn't aren't they garbage? So I do. Um, we got. I know we'll talk about it in a bit, but in the debate with with Tucker Goodrich, that came up definitely. <laughs> um, and I think there is kind of a misunderstanding of how they're conducted. So prior to using them in, in this research, they're validated. So what you'll do is you'll take a smaller group of, of individuals, you'll have them fill out the food frequency questionnaires, and you'll actually track their intake with, you know, they could be weighted food records. So they actually weigh their food out and, and you have what they're eating at different points over an extended period of time. And you might even check with them, you know, several months apart. And you'll see, does that food, fre food frequency questionnaire, the way that it's written, does it actually end up tracking your overall food intake in the long term? Does it correlate? Yeah, does it correlate well? So they do that. Another way that they started to do it now, um, and I think this is newer, but uh, they'll look at blood levels of certain markers of intake. And so, you know, blood levels of these different markers can correlate with intake. So you can't lie about that, right? You you measure it um, and uh, and you can you know kind of see how well the, the FFQ correlates with that as well. So these are validated instruments in most cases. Sometimes they use invalidated ones, and that's why you look at the method section to see if it's you know, validated or not. But, um, but if they're using a validated questionnaire, like I wouldn't have too many qualms about it. Tucker Goodrick. Goodrich, Goodrick. Uh, one of the two. True or false, Tucker Goodrich won the seed oil debate. <laughs> See, I think I'm I'm extra biased in this in this case, but I don't think so. I would can, say false. Can you tell people what this seed yeah. oil debate yeah. uh, was or is for yeah. those who yeah. maybe haven't seen it? Yeah. So, um, just even backtracking to like what are seed oils for a second. So, kind of your classic vegetable oils, the things like um, canola oil, sunflower oil, safflower, soybean, etc., corn oil, which was a funny point that came up during the debate about corn oil, but. Uh, um, yeah, so so we had, you know, he's one of the people or faces behind this whole anti-seed oil movement. Um, thinks that you know seed oils are the primary cause of most of our um, chronic diseases out there. He thinks if you eliminate them, you're pretty well safe, uh, at least as far as my understanding is of of most 
of the the chronic diseases out there. Um, and I reached out to him on Twitter one day and just said, Hey, you know, I, I have some you know concerns with what you're saying, you know, would you be open to having a, a debate discussion about this? And then it took a while to get rolling. Eventually, we made it happen, you hosted, and it was like a four hour marathon, and we had the bathroom breaks throughout like it was, it was a long thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it really got into the weeds at some points. Um, but I think I think it was clear, and this sounded like the takeaway when you did a recap episode with Drew as well, was that I did have answers to pretty much everything he threw at me, and I had responses to it. I knew his citations pretty well too, and there were a lot of questions of mine that he was not able to answer, that he tried to dance around, and you know, and some things even bit the bullet on like, like he said that non-fatal heart attacks don't matter because seed oils in his own study show, were shown to protect against um, heart disease events, not necessarily cardiovascular mortality because you just need larger, longer term studies to even detect that. Um, but because it was beneficial for heart attacks as a whole, he said that non-fatal heart attacks don't matter, which I think is absurd of a position. Um, and uh, just stuff like that. There were just some, some, some things I think he could have just said like, oh, you know, maybe that is the case or, or you know, and, and we could have just left it there. But instead, went the extra mile. And, and I think that's when you see kind of who won the debate, so to speak, is when you have these, you know, very extreme positions being taken just to hold on to your you know, view and, and to, to hopefully come out on top, I guess. Remind us of the, the bit on the corn oil that you just yeah. mentioned before. So this was funny. So there was one study I cited throughout, because I think it's the best study we have on this topic. In fact, I would argue it's probably one of the best studies we have in nutrition period. This is, so the, this is one of the things that Tucker found difficult to reconcile. Yeah. Yeah. The LA Veterans Administration Hospital study. So a double blind randomized controlled trial. People were, were living um, in an institution where they were randomized to one cafeteria or an another. In the one cafeteria, they were having more of the saturated animal fats. In the other cafeteria, they removed the saturated fats. They actually split them up and they, they well, went well, they, into they, different they were randomized to different cafeterias. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so like, you know that everything in that caf cafeteria is one type, the other one is the other type, but they don't know what they're getting. And what they did in the seed oil one is they removed the um, saturated fat from a lot of the foods. So like they even had ice cream where they just like made it with like seed oils or they took sausages where they you know somehow extracted the saturated fat and fused it with seed oils. So they're like going the extra mile. And they did a small study prior to make sure that they tasted the same and people couldn't tell. Like it's just crazy the amount of work that went into it. And um, so at the end, you know, the, the um, seed oil group ended up having better outcomes. And he tried to criticize it, but I already knew a lot of his criticisms to this study in advance because I knew he'd come across it. And I had responses to every single one of his criticisms. So at one point when he didn't have any more criticisms, I just, you know, I listed the oils that they were using and one of the oils, so it wasn't the only one, but one of the three or four main oils they were using was corn oil. And he said that corn oil isn't a seed oil, which... I mean, technically it's a grain, I guess, but that is a seed, like whatever, we're getting technical there. The makeup of corn oil, as far as its fat content is, you know, identical or very similar to, to every other seed oil. And um, what's really ironic about that is that two of the three studies that he cited in that he said were the best studies on the topic of seed oils were the Minnesota coronary experiment, where they used a corn oil margarine and um, the rose corn oil study, literally in the title of the paper. And so I didn't catch him on it in that moment. I wish I did. 
But it was, it was just so out of left field, this whole corn oil thing, that I didn't even think of that and put two and two together, but he's contradicting himself. If, if that's the case, that, that corn oil isn't relevant to the discussion, then two of his favorite studies are out the window. Yeah, so. it's, a, it's a logical inconsistency. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what's the takeaway point here for someone, again, they're going to the grocery store and thinking about what they're going to cook their vegetables in or <laughs> add to their recipe? Are they choosing corn oil, uh, safflower oil, canola oil, olive oil, avocado oil, macadamia oil? How does someone navigate that? So I, I would say you can't really go wrong with any of the ones that you mentioned. Um, I would say the one, at least for blood lipids like LDL cholesterol, canola oil is probably the best. It's also the highest in omega-3 of the ones that you listed there. Um, so that has a pretty bad rap though. It has I a think, terrible I rap. think a lot of people hear canola and assume inflammatory, mm. obesogenic, increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Yeah, that's the challenge is it has it has this bad rap, even though the health outcome data is completely on the other side. And in fact, there's not a single study that's ever shown that it increases inflammation, not one. And in fact, that goes for all seed oils. From what I've seen, I think many people form that view or convinced of that after hearing about how it's made. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's the whole like processing nature, industrial nature of it, I guess. I mean, but that goes for so many foods that we eat. That goes for olive oil as well you know, in a lot of cases. And what I would say, though, is if someone is truly confused, if they're not convinced by what I'm saying here, go for olive oil. You can't go wrong with that. And that's something that actually Tucker and I agreed on was that olive oil is a good option. So mm -hmm. if you want some level of yeah. agreement there. <laughs> and that's this is a good a good thing for us to underline. There were some agreements. Mm -hmm. I think that both parties would agree that consuming ultra-processed, highly palatable foods that contain seed oils is probably yeah. not a great idea. Um, you two may differ in why those foods are deleterious for health. He might isolate and say, look, out of all of those ingredients in that food matrix, the artificial ingredients, the additives, the, the other fats, the refined sugars, <laughs> all of these things, the, the fact that there's no fiber, he might still say it's the seed oils. Yeah. Whereas you would, and, and I'm sort of speaking for you, but I imagine you would say, it's a culmination of many factors. Yeah, and more than anything, you nailed it with the hyperpalatability. I think that's the number one factor, which can be contributed to by the high fat content and the sodium content and all that stuff as well. But that's a little bit different to adding some canola oil to your yeah. cooking on your vegetables or some olive oil on a salad. Yeah, that's not at all comparable. <laughs> okay. It's like actually a, an analogy I often use. It's like saying that water is deleterious to health because it's the main ingredient in Coca-Cola. Right. It's the package. It's not, it's not the water that's doing it. True or false. Because a vegan diet requires vitamin B12 supplementation or the inclusion of uh, vitamin B12 containing fortified foods, it's not natural and therefore it cannot be a healthy diet. I'd say true. It's not natural. I'd say false that that means that it can't be a healthy diet. Um, just because something's natural doesn't mean it's healthy. Just because something's unnatural doesn't mean it's it's harmful. Um, we can look at, I mean, we've, we've talked a bit about red meat. I know there's debate around that, but that being one the food that's like natural, but in, in, you know, with a certain level of exposure can be deleterious to health. Um, for, you know, processed foods, we'll get into plant milks in a bit, I'm sure. Tofu, we've already talked about. We did two full episodes on soy and, and that's very health promoting food. Um, and so, 
this this like kind of naturalistic fallacy um i i think it drives a lot of people's at least in the wellness space their kind of decisions around foods and and health but but really at the end of the day it comes down to the the health outcome data like what does the research actually say about the impact of this on our health um and in that case i mean there are a lot of of unnatural things that you know could be quite healthy for us if you want to take that route yeah. then you kind of need to accept that you'll end up back living in a cave and maybe your life expectancy is only 30 years. Yeah, exactly. And, and like, I mean, I know the question was specific to vegan diets too. Like vegans consistently do better than meat eaters in, in most of the, the research out there, whether it's the Adventist studies, the Epic studies or, or whatever, there might be certain outcomes where the vegans do, do worse. And uh, we can dive into some of those if you want, but like, but generally speaking, when it comes to cardiovascular disease, mortality, et cetera, they tend to do better. It's also not just vegans taking supplements exactly. and there are nutrient deficiencies that omnivores can be at increased risk of developing as well mm -hmm. there's they tend to be different nutrients yeah um so that's worth i guess pointing yeah out. there was a great review from i think it was in 2021 a systematic review of these studies published between 2000 and 2020 um and it was looking at nutrient intake or status of well basically anything on, on a vegan vegetarian or omnivorous diet and they had a fantastic chart in there where it highlighted nutrients that are at risk of inadequacy on a vegan diet and then nutrients that are favorably high things like fiber and magnesium folate. And so, yeah folate uh, and then you look at the same chart for the omnivores in that in that paper and it's just kind of the opposite <laughs> it's like so there are some nutrients the vegans are doing awesome with but the meat eaters might need to worry about a little bit yeah like magnesium yeah. and folate and then and then there were some that there was overlap all dietary groups were, um, you know, had concerning uh, intakes or, or levels of vitamin D. Um, same with iodine uh, and, you know, a few other nutrients as well. So on the on the vegan side of that, just to kind of refresh everyone's memories, I know this is right in your wheelhouse. Someone sits down with you, they're newly adopting a, a plant-based diet. Let's say it's plant-exclusive in this scenario. What are the sort of core nutrients of focus that you're bringing their attention to that they would either need to supplement or pay particular attention to certain food groups yeah so um b12 is an obvious one i think that goes i think everyone's hopefully everyone's aware of that are you on point. the cyanocobalamin or I, yeah I, I tend to favor cyano for a couple of reasons for one it's just cheaper and more widely available it seems you pick it up at like any pharmacy um and then it's more shelf stable which is nice um uh, and it's just the one that's been more well-researched at this point. I don't think there's a problem with doing methyl or adenosyl or whatever. I think they'll work as well. Um, but I just tend to, to favor cyano because of yeast. And, and um, You can always test your levels as well yeah, and make exactly. sure that whatever you're taking is keeping you in the sort of normal or optimal part of the reference range. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then um, because especially me being in Vancouver, we don't get a ton of sunshine year round, um, maybe a few months out of the summer, um, vitamin D is one that I, I tend to emphasize, you know, uh, whether supplementing or fortified foods, I'd say most of my, my patients end up supplementing uh, with that. And then um, or testing, perhaps if, if they're relying on fortified foods, we can always test that too. Um, and then calcium is one that I think is only a concern if you're avoiding like fortified milks and whatnot. So I, I try to promote the consumption of fortified milks, a, a cup or two uh, per day, that just helps add a bit of an insurance policy. Um, you know, if you're getting say 300 milligrams per cup, um, even a single cup adds quite a, a dent to, to your overall intake. Um, but if you're not 
consuming fortified milks, if they don't like plant milks, and if there aren't other fortified foods available, then maybe considering a, a supplement for that. Um, what do you think the typical vegan would consume on a daily basis if they weren't supplementing with calcium or they weren't getting a calcium fortified plant milk? Are we talking like five, six, seven hundred milligrams? I, I think so. If you look at like some of the research on the Epic Oxford cohort, for example, and, and these would be people who probably weren't eating much in the way of fortified foods, they're on average getting, I think it's around 550 or so milligrams. Um, and I think that's reasonable. I think that's reasonable to get out of foods like tofu that isn't calcium set. We can't get that in, in Vancouver. I don't know if, if you're able to in Australia, but I know over in the UK, it's more of a thing. But um, so uh, you can get a fair amount from tofu, uh, some from other legumes almonds almond butters uh broccoli certain greens um but it's just no, nowhere near that huge dose you can so get you're trying that. to get people up more towards 1000 milligrams at least 700 well i i know that's the the recommendation in the uk i tend to favor a thousand because let's have a safety net um but i would say like bare minimum you want to get at least that 700 mm -hmm. okay so calcium uh, vitamin yeah. d b12 <clears throat> iodine you mentioned before yeah iodine so if they're using an iodized salt um, then they could be covered if they're having about half a teaspoon or so per day. That again, it depends on their intake. So I'll like go into detail on it, like how much are you using regularly in that. Um, otherwise, a supplement could be a reasonable option. Or for people with high blood pressure, provided they don't have kidney disease or other contraindications, you can actually use potassium-based um, salt alternative. So it's a potassium chloride instead of a sodium chloride, um, which can be better for your blood pressure as well. And you can get iodized versions of that. Do you find when you're working with people who are new to this, this can all sound a little bit overwhelming. It, I think it can the way we're kind of talking about it here. But one thing that I will often kind of offer to them is like, look, we can do this multivitamin that just covers it all. <laughs> and, and, and then you don't have to worry about it. And I think that's so easy. So that's another option. If you have a multi that covers the things like B12, D, iodine, uh, and uh, so on. Um, if there's you know concerns around zinc or selenium, potentially, depending on their diet and what they're eating, you can just get that in one, one pill per day. And that makes it so easy. So, and there's not a problem with. I mean, I, I think there might be this idea out there. Or I know there is that consuming these synthetic supplements can't be good. There are some people who come with concerns, but I ask them what their concerns are. And and I'm fortunate that I have a lot of time to spend with my patients, especially on a first visit. Um, we can spend you know up to an hour, and and you know I'll just go through what are your concerns, and we'll go through them one by one. And usually by the end of that sort of educational period, they're on board. It's just it, again, it's so easy to do. It's not worth the risks of falling short, especially on something like B12. Um, and so usually they get on board. And the same thing goes for medications. I mean, I get people coming in who don't want to take statins, but their LDLs through the roof or something. And we'll have this sort of, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, like we'll spend half an hour on just the topic of like, what are your concerns about statins? And, and we'll, you know, come to a conclusion where we're able to, to, you know, let's start with a low dose and, and see how you tolerate it. And then we can, you know, consider upping the dose if we need to from there. And, and so, um, I think it's all just education, but unfortunately when, as we talked about earlier, when you're online, you're getting all sorts of conflicting information all over the place or if you're going to, to your doctor in, in most cases you don't have the time there's a lot of fear-mongering yeah because that that creates hype and clicks and um what's lost in all of that is that person on the end who just ends up totally confused and maybe makes a decision about their health that is not the best yeah um even folic acid comes to mind there what's your view we we mentioned folate um there's certainly a camp out there that are convinced that folic acid is increasing rates of cancer 
Yeah, I honestly, I don't even know where that comes from. Uh, I haven't like seen good data suggesting it's, it's you know, causing cancer or anything like that. Um, and it is actually really important for like pregnancy outcomes. So if you're, you know, a female and you're of uh, menstruating age and you're, you're planning to become pregnant at some point, then that's definitely something to be, you know, taking and considering. Um, and, you know, folate, like you can get folate supplements as well, and then they may do the same thing. But, um, but most of the research we have is on folic acid, so I just wouldn't mess around. Right. Folate's one of those nutrients we mentioned. If you're eating a, a vegan diet and it's full of whole foods, you're, you're getting quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like that's one of the things that like in most of the studies comparing again, like meat eaters to, to vegans, the, the vegans tend to have double the intake at least. Like it tends to be really, really high. You mentioned plant milks before. Yeah. This is not a plant milk. Yeah. But you want, have you tried some? I have not. Have a, have a sip. Have a sip. And this is not a sponsored post. Yeah, you have a sip and then I'll tell you what what it is. It's interesting. Sorry, mate. That's the uh, the first cow's milk that you've had in a while. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's technically, technically not cow's milk. It's a dairy protein. Yeah. Um, no, that, that was like, it had the, it's been 14 years since I've had dairy milk. So maybe I'm, <laughs> I'm misremembering, but it does have that sort of Sorry, texture mate. or mouthfeel. It has You're no like longer that, vegan. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm no, <laughs> not vegan anymore, but it has that sort of mouthfeel that I kind of, I mean, it says animal free right on it. I think yeah. I'm good, but, um, but, uh, it has that mouthfeel that I kind of remember mm. vaguely. Um, it's interesting. Right. So for anyone who's listening on the audio, <laughs> um, Dr. Nagra just tried board. Is it board cow? Board cow. Board cow. So this is this is not a sponsored post, by the way. Uh, although it did get sent to me, uh, <laughs> not for this purpose. But um, this is a new way of producing dairy milk through precision fermentation. I've had an episode on it previously, but in in short, you can use microbes to microbes produce proteins and providing whatever instructions they have will dictate the proteins that they produce and there are ways to get those microbes to produce the same proteins that are found in dairy products your favorite yogurt or cheese or milk and so there's been enormous innovation in this area over a long time and it dates back actually this is really interesting. So most insulin today that someone who has diabetes is using is an insulin to protein, a peptide protein, um, that is produced through precision fermentation. And historically, though, it, do, do you know how they got it was, insulin? It was isolated from animals, I think. Right. right. I yeah. believe it was baby cows. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they would have to slaughter baby cows to get the insulin and then... Uh, of course, they realized from an ethical and a, and a sustainable, uh, a scalability point of view, they needed to come up with another means and they worked out how to make insulin through precision fermentation. And then over the years, it's a, it's a, um, a technique that's been used to produce other types of protein that are found in cheese, actually, that people will have consumed before, rennet. Um, and now there's a bunch of companies that are, using it already with in-market products to to offer, I guess, animal-free versions of milk and yogurt and ice cream. Yeah, and, and, and this, uh, to, to note, it's, it's 
because it's just the protein that doesn't have any cholesterol, it's actually very low in saturated fat. I don't know what they use for the fat content, but yeah. What, what would you say to someone who sort of pushes back and says, is that healthy? I mean, I, I would look for something like this. We don't have long-term health outcome data on proteins produced this way. Mind you, we have a lot of research on these proteins in other contexts, and I don't see a good reason to think that the protein itself would be detrimental in any way. And in fact, um, it could even be beneficial, you know, just by increasing protein intake. Uh, the other thing I would look at is just the nutrient profile. That's what we do have information for. And I, I did look at the label earlier and, and it, you know, had, like I said, no cholesterol had, it said zero gram saturated fat. I think technically it's like less than 0.5, you know, grams per serving or something like that. The sodium wasn't very high. It was like 140 milligrams. Like from a health standpoint, I would, I would consume that. <laughs> you know, I don't see any issue with that. I like soy milk better. You know, I, I would probably keep doing that, but I wouldn't have any issue with, with drinking this. Saturated fat dedicated a bunch of episodes to this yeah. jill dr jill carvalho yeah and i did a, a deep dive on sort of whether or not saturated fat is harmful and all of the intricacies of the research things that you spoke about before like what is the uh what is the contrast when you're comparing high and low consumption and what is the replacement food and whatnot and we sort of walked people through all of that research to explain why the guidelines are what they are which recommends to limit saturated fat not that it's poisonous but the dose matters so how do you help someone navigate that if they say uh, i understand i need to moderate saturated fat what does that mean and if i'm reading labels or thinking about my diet how do i ensure that my diet doesn't contain too much saturated fat yeah, so if you're if you're going by guidelines, which is typically to limit saturated fat to 10 grams of total, or sorry, 10% of total calories or less, which translates to about 22 grams of uh, saturated fat in a day, um, then reading labels can be helpful in that you you just don't want to pass that on a, on a given day. So if you're looking at a label and it's got like two or three grams of saturated fat per serving, that's not all that much. That that's probably okay. If you're having like seven servings, then you know, it can it can certainly get up there. But uh, but that I wouldn't worry too much about. If it's you know seven grams per serving, ten grams per serving, then maybe you're a little bit more concerned that that's going to add up you know a third or a half of my you know target for the day or limit for the day. Um, at the same time, if you're somebody who's at risk or you have elevated ApoB then you might want to go even lower than that. And generally speaking, I would say the lower the better as long as you're having a you know well-balanced, healthy, nutritionally adequate diet. Um, now, outside of food labels, because not all foods have labels, the foods that are typically going to be higher in saturated fat are like fattier cuts of meat. So if you're doing like the extra, extra lean meat, it'll be lower in saturated fat. Doesn't mean it's risk-free for, for other reasons, uh, but... Um, but generally, uh, the fattier cuts will be much higher. Um, butter is like very high. Coconut oil is very high. Um, some dairy products like the creams and, and full fat milk might be concerning. Cheese seems to be more middle of the road um, uh, as far as its impact on lipids, just the saturated fat there. And then the one like true exception would be cocoa. Um, so the saturated fat in chocolate seems to have a neutral effect on blood lipids. Um, so to, to bring all of that back, basically reading labels, Generally, you know, a few grams or so per serving, I think, is reasonable. Um, maybe up to five grams at most per serving uh, is, is probably a reasonable target. And then as far as foods, the fattier cuts of meat, butter, creams, that sort of thing are, are the things to generally limit. Right. It's one of the advantages of 
either eating predominantly whole plant foods or exclusively providing well that actually rules out coconut oil and palm oil yeah uh by by virtue of it being minimally or, or unprocessed whole foods but one of the advantages is you really don't have to count it just naturally occurs that that is a low saturated fat yeah. um, diet but then people are of course interested in all of the the new meat alternative products mm-hmm. that are coming out and uh, some of those can be loaded with saturated fat yeah. where they use a lot of coconut oil or palm oil um, so that's something i think for people to keep an eye on and i think your rule of five grams of saturated fat or less is is a good one and keeping an eye on your apob or ldl cholesterol levels and then you can ascertain is the current diet working for you or not or do you need to sort of titrate and change some of the foods yeah because there's genetic differences too mm. like like my just personally my apob is very low i probably have a lot more Blessed. leeway yeah i know i'm, I'm lucky but but uh <laughs> i mean it's diet plus probably some genetics right but um but i probably have a lot more leeway than someone else might or even you do right and so um so that's a good way to kind of figure out how much wiggle room do i have is by just testing right what else on a label if let's let's stick to uh these meat alternative products and then maybe we can talk about plant milks uh separately what else are you looking for to distinguish between a meat alternative that could be sort of less healthy versus one that is healthier so this is probably the hardest thing to find um, in kind of an appropriate or, or healthier range on a, in a plant-based meat, but that's sodium. You know, if, if, again, we're going back to, to guidelines. Sodium intake uh, is best limited to about 2,300 milligrams. And I think that's a fair target, especially when it comes to stroke risk. Um, if you are someone who's at risk, who has high blood pressure, then even lower, um, you know, around 1,500 milligrams. Um, and for reference, the 2,300 milligrams is about a teaspoon of salt. Um, and so... If you're looking at some of these plant-based meat alternatives, they'll have 600 milligrams of sodium in a, a burger. I'll have two burgers, you know, <laughs> like that's going to add up really quick. Makes them tasty. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's another thing. It does make them tasty, but, but that can add up really quick. Um, there are some alternatives I've seen. I can't recall specific brand names right now where it is more around the 200, 250 milligram mark. And I think that's a much better option from a sodium standpoint, especially for someone with high blood pressure. Um, so that's another thing that I'm looking at is, is the sodium content. If you look at saturated fat content, five grams or less, and then you look at sodium content, was it 300 milligrams or less? I mean, again, the, these are ballpark, ballpark figures. There's no hard line. But, but those two things before even looking at anything else is knocking out. It's, it's, a lot it's of narrowing it. the field. Yeah, <laughs> it is big time. Yeah, it's, it's really narrowing it. Um, you're you're going to be stuck with like black bean burgers at that point, probably mm. in a lot of cases. Right. One of the other things I'd like to see is some fiber. Yeah, yeah, that's the, I was going to say that's probably the next thing I would look at is, is fiber. And, and I don't know that I have a hard line for that either because it depends on the, if you're eating a ton of fiber-rich foods in your diet, you're getting like 40, 50 grams of fiber. I don't think you need to worry about it. But if you are somebody like the average American, perhaps, who's getting very, very little fiber, you know, every four, five, six grams matters. Um, and in those cases, yeah, just looking for a higher fiber content, maybe not the one or two grams, but somewhere in the you know, four or five grams might even make right. a difference. Yeah, the context matters. I know a lot of uh, athletes who find it actually helpful to have some of the lower fiber 
meat alternatives because they're already getting so much fiber into their diet and they're trying to meet their very high caloric requirements. Yeah. And I think the same thing goes for kids. I think growing kids, like that's another thing is their stomachs don't maybe stretch that much, right? And, and it's harder for them to get in the calories. And so either having some of that stuff that is at least mildly processed or including things like oils and whatnot uh, can help bump up the calorie density a bit. What about the idea that they're ultra processed? Yeah. Um, so like the thing about foods being ultra processed is so it's largely based on this Nova classification. And so there's, there's a zone or a class one, two, three, four, four is ultra processed. And so if you're taking a food that is made primarily of food ingredients or has, um, has, you know, a certain number of additives to them, they're going to be classified as ultra processed. Now that might sound really bad just based on how I've described it, but you think about fortified plant-based milks, they fall into that category. You can have a, a soy milk. You, you can make a homemade almond milk. Let's, let's do that. Homemade almond milk and you can add something like you know calcium to it um, to fortify it yourself and all of a sudden it's ultra processed. Think about that. Does that mean it's bad for you? Probably not. Um, we have food like tofu. Um, again, you do like a calcium set tofu or something. That's going to be considered ultra processed. Um, so it's an imperfect system. It's way too simplistic. And there has been a lot of pushback on that classification lately because ultra-processed foods can vary a lot. You, you can't sit there and tell me a, a Twinkie is going to be the same as tofu, right? And, and uh, you know, again, specifically like a, a calcium set or like a smoked tofu or something, which would be ultra-processed. Um, so yeah, I don't like the classification that much. I think as a general rule, limiting ultra-processed foods is probably a good idea, but there is nuance there. I love tofu, but I, I do wish tofu tasted like Twinkies. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot more people would yeah, eat fair it. Enough. Well, we had tiramisu <laughs> last night that was made with a tofu base. Was it really? Yeah. That was great. That was incredible. Uh, um, shout out to yeah. uh, Aisha yeah. Sherzai. Unbelievable cooking. Oh, man. I need that recipe. Hospitality but, was yeah. incredible. Yeah. And great conversations. Yeah. She must have, you, you can, I don't know if you want to show everyone a picture, but that spread, of, she must have been cooking all we'll day. We'll put something up on, yeah. the, on the YouTube for sure. Um, okay. The other thing that often comes up here is a sort of side-by-side -side comparison or, or maybe just a, a photo of the ultra-processed food ingredient list and the idea that simply because the ingredient list is long, that, that food must be unhealthy. Yeah. Um, Have you seen that? Yeah, oh, all you the time. You know what I'm talking about? All the time, yeah. Yeah. All the time. And and one of the, the examples I always use of that is, again, the plant-based milks going back to that. So if you were to take a, a soy milk, for example, um, uh, we'll say it's a fortified soy milk, it'll have like, you know, the soybeans, the water, whatever, those would be some of the first ingredients. And then um, and then there might be, you know, a couple emulsifying agents, you know, some certain gums or, or whatnot. Uh, and then it's just nutrients. It's just like, your your calcium your vitamin a all your b vitamins but they'll also use the scientific names for these things so it'll be like calcium carbonate they'll be like tri uh, tri uh no or tri calcium phosphate be so one it of sounds a little bit like something yeah. that you yeah. make in a chemistry lab exactly you've got <laughs> you've got uh, cyanocobalamin you've got uh, cholecalciferol you've got you know all these names they sound really complicated and and yeah scientific when really those compounds just, are found in eggs Exactly. <laughs> exactly. These are just vitamins and minerals that they're adding. They actually make the food healthier, you know, and um, but because it it doubles the size of that list, it, it makes it seem are, worse. Are you worried about are there any ingredients where you're like, I really don't want to see that in the ingredient list, whether it's uh, refined sugars, there's a bunch of different names for what that could be. Uh, you mentioned gums, emulsifiers, um, carrageenan often comes up. 
Is there anything that you would, if a patient sort of sits down with you and says, okay, I understand the saturated fat and the, the sodium and try and find something with fiber. When I'm looking at the ingredient list, is there anything that I really don't want to see? There, there's one that, I, that comes right to mind, but you won't really find it anymore. And that's uh, partially hydrogenated oils. So that would have been one just because of the trans fat content that I, I wouldn't want in there. But otherwise, it all comes down to the amount. So you, you kind of have to like cross check the, the ingredients list with the nutrition facts label. Because let's say sugar you mentioned, if, if they're adding that and then you look at the label and it's like two grams or something like who cares? It's not really anything. Um, but if it's all if it's all of a sudden like 25 grams in a beverage, that's a sugar sweetened beverage. That's actually really not healthy to be having regularly. Well, then I'd be more concerned. But but that's not necessarily the. I mean, based on the ingredients list, it's based on on the right. kind of the amount and everything. The ingredient list could be a clue if yeah. the first ingredient, which usually is yeah. the ingredient um, of greatest concentration uh, or input amount. Yeah, if it's like first or second ingredients, high fructose corn syrup, and then you look at the, the nutrition facts, it's like, you know, 25, 30, 40 grams maybe even of, of sugar, then yeah, that's not great. Okay, so is there a, a, a number of, a kind of threshold of added sugars that you'd like to see it below on a per serve basis. So it, for the most part, um, sugar seems to to impact us negatively based on the amount that it adds to our, you know, uh, say excessive calorie intake. So, um, so that would come down to total calories. Are you eating calorie balance? That's going to depend. That's going to vary so much person to person. Where I generally would be mindful, especially if you're having it regularly, is if you're having a beverage with like, you know, 20 plus grams of sugar in it. Because if you're having that kind of day in and out, that's something that actually appears to increase risk of things like cardiovascular disease, you know, potentially diabetes and whatnot, independent of body weight, or at least some effects independent of body weight. Um, and so that that is one thing that I would be mindful of, but I don't know that I can set like a hard number on it. Okay. You already sort of gave us your views on seed oils <laughs> yeah but they of course show up on these labels as yeah. well. and they're the funny thing about that is yeah they'll often have like sunflower oil or something and then you you look at the ingredients list and it's like fat zero grams it doesn't even make sense and that's because it's a tiny drop basically it's just to help help with emulsification of the uh, of the different ingredients in there so it, it's basically not even in there right okay and you mentioned you want to see two or three hundred milligrams of calcium yeah. ideally in the plant milk um, and your preference is soy i like soy is yeah. that because of the protein content or um it's it's the protein just nutritional content overall um even like iron a little bit better than some of the other ones uh not that i'm personally concerned about that but uh just the protein content the taste texture i, I just like it more i know a lot of people prefer oat and that's fine uh, but uh, but i just like the soy true or false Phytates and oxalates in foods like oats and dark leafy greens rob your body of minerals. Um, that's a false. Um, <laughs> Do you know where I got that from? Yeah. Um, rob your body. That was from the same talk, wasn't it? No? Where was that from? It's uh, my friend Paul Saladin. Oh, okay. <laughs> Best buddy. Um, so when you say they rob your body that that almost sounds like to people like it's removing it from your body stores of like you know, like taking calcium out of your bones or something um and even if we grant for a second that they bind to minerals it's it's the minerals in the food that you're eating so it, it's not that it would rob your body of them it's that if anything it would, might reduce the amount that you absorb to a degree 
Now, there are some other issues with that, starting with, let's start with phytates. So the, the main minerals that are often brought up with phytates are iron and zinc. Now, in the short term, if we were to look at like a single meal study and you take people who are having you know, a high phytate food versus low phytate food, same iron content, you might see that the high phytate food leads to lower iron absorption. But what they don't look at is long-term intake. And there are at least two randomized controlled trials I'm aware of that looked at intake over eight or more weeks. And when you randomize people to higher low phytate for that period of time, there's no, no significant differences in iron status at the end of that period. And so that tells us that the habitual intake, regularly consuming these, these foods, leads to, to some sort of balance as far as absorption goes. So um, if maybe in the beginning you don't absorb as much, your, your body somehow modifies that. And there's some speculation around the gut microbiome and how that might you know, impact the interaction between phytates and minerals. I don't know if it's entirely clear on what happens. But the net result is that we see a similar level of, of iron absorption in the long run. Right. And, and with zinc, we don't have as much research, but there was one analysis of eight studies done on children in particular. And they found that about a 500 milligram increase in phytate consumption, which I, I think is about a cup of cooked brown rice, so about like half a cup raw, um, uh, I think it's roughly around that, uh, might have inhibited zinc absorption by like 0 0.04 milligrams a day, like nothing. And they ultimately conclude that there's just, you know, no major impact on, um, uh, on, uh, absorption of zinc either. Uh, but again, we don't have as good data for zinc as we do for iron. But, but the point being that in the long run, we don't see really a negative effect. In fact, if we look at urinary phytate levels in women, and I think this was the nurse's health study, we see higher phytate levels are associated with better bone mineral density. You know, so it's actually better outcomes. There's speculative evidence if we were to look at, you know, animal models or cell culture studies that they might have anti-cancer or cardioprotective right. Decrease problems. Decrease advanced glycation yeah. end products. Exactly. So the same types of speculations that a lot of these people in the carnivore community can actually be used in favor of phytates versus against, but, but obviously they don't usually mention those. That would make for some interesting <laughs> content on social media. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll uh, think about it for, for future <laughs> here. Um, and then for the other side, so for oxalates, so it's well known that oxalates bind to calcium. I think that's pretty well understood. Um, and you know, really the, the solution there is just don't focus on oxalate-rich foods for your main calcium sources. Um, and that would be things like spinach, uh, beets, uh, uh, Swiss chard being some of the main ones. And instead focus on other things like, I mean, we talked about fortified milks being a, a really awesome one. Even things like broccoli are pretty decent. Almonds, almond butters are decent. Yeah, what are the, what are the lower oxalate grains? Lower, um, so kale would be one that's low, which is funny because I've seen people like Dave Asprey call it a high oxalate. I actually made a post about this. It, it's in his uh, book too, I think, saying that it's one of the main offenders as far as oxalates, but kale's actually very low in oxalates. You can take almost any green other than the three I mentioned and they're pretty low in oxalates. He has a kale buster somewhere. Yeah, I know. I know there's a kale buster. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> yeah. you, and, you and Drew talked about that on your, uh, yeah. on your, your, um. Uh, episode that, that was a funny one uh, but then yeah like uh, with oxalates it's really just just don't eat those those oxalate rich greens as your main calcium source it's okay to have them um, just don't focus on them right okay so we can put that one to rest phytates and oxalates are not going to rob your body no. of minerals <laughs> true or false and you've already alluded to this but i want you to answer it directly there is a single optimal diet um, no, I don't think so. Uh, or if there is, we haven't figured it out. Um, what I would say is that there are characteristics of a healthy diet that can apply to multiple different 
healthy you know dietary patterns so um things like you know fruits i would say roughly two or more servings a day vegetables roughly three or more servings a day whole grains ideally three or more you know some might even argue five or more uh, per day um legumes or like this is kind of an either or because different populations will use different foods as their protein sources but either um legumes or fish as, as some of your primary protein sources um and then uh, nuts and seeds or oils or and or oils um uh, as your polyunsaturated fat sources, essential fats. Those are kind of the bases for what makes up a healthy diet. And you can fill it in with, with other things, but that applies to, say, the Mediterranean diet, DASH diet, portfolio. Um, it can be a, a vegan diet or like a whole foods, plant-based sort of diet, um, depending on the iteration. Um, it's not one, you know, diet. So low saturated fat, it features unsaturated fats. Mm-hmm. It's high in fiber, yeah. low in ultra processed foods. Exactly as the foundation and then you you can then you have wiggle room too that's the other thing you don't have to be like 100 percent, you know um only healthy foods all the time like you can you can fill in gaps a little bit with other stuff you can enjoy yourself you know that that's the other thing is is we don't have good reason to believe that that you know all of these these less healthy foods so to speak are going to be detrimental in any serving size. i wish we had another word phrase for ultra processed foods because even in what i just said then contradicts the idea (laughs) that there are some ultra processed foods that you don't have to moderate that are actually healthy yeah and that it's it's such an umbrella term and as you said can be everything from uh what did you say twinkies twinkie to 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 soy milk or something or tofu (laughs) right um we need another word to distinguish between those yeah i don't know what it is Mm. i feel like it's too ingrained at this point it's, it's just, it's used all the time. I think, the I think we need to get the Nova classification committee back, to, get, yeah. get, get them back to the drawing board there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> True or false? Eating fat makes you fat. It can if you eat it uh, in excess calories. But um, I would say false as it was kind of stated there. Um, basically eating excess calories, whether it's from carbs or from fat is what leads to fat gain and both high fat and high carb diets can lead to weight loss if eaten in a calorie deficit. And we've seen that in in several studies now. So, um, yeah, I think that's really just the kind of quick answer to that one. When you adopt a keto diet, you burn more fat. True. But where is that fat coming from? So, so there's, um, this idea that when you're eating keto because you're in a fat burning state that you're burning your own fat, but that just comes down to calories. So if you're eating in a calorie deficit, if you're eating less calories than you need, whether it's on a ketogenic diet or otherwise, you're going to burn fat. If you're eating, let's say at a weight stable amount, let's say you have 2000 calories you're eating in a day. In one case, you're eating a ketogenic, very high fat diet. In the other case, you're eating a low fat, high carb diet, same amount of calories. The keto diet will burn more fat because they're putting more fat in. They're burning the fat or yeah, they're just burning the fat that they're eating. It's not necessarily burning the fat that they've stored. Um, Whereas with the higher carb diet, they're burning the carbs that they're eating, not tapping into their fat or or carb stores that way either. So I I hope that's clear unless you have another way to rephrase that. No, I think that was great. I think it confuses people. Yeah. Right. The idea separating... uh, the fuel that you're using from the food you're eating versus body fat so fat in the diet yeah and what you'll be using to to generate energy versus body fat stores yeah they're two separate things okay a low carb ketogenic diet 
is the best diet for treating type 2 diabetes? Um, I would say false with like the exception that some people might do better on it. So basically with, with type 2 diabetes, the main factor is going to be um, uh, fat loss. Um, so the, the main contributor to insulin resistance is going to be um, excess body fat accumulation, especially liver fat and, and pancreas fat. And, um, and so if you're able to lose fat, whether it's on a ketogenic diet or again, a higher carb diet, you can help improve insulin sensitivity, um, help prevent further damage to your pancreatic beta cells, uh, and hopefully uh, improve your condition and, and in some cases even avoid things like medication down the road. Now, if you're at a point, and we talked about this a bit previously, not, not in this conversation, but um, if you're in a case where the pancreas has been damaged and you're requiring insulin, it might be the case that somebody on a ketogenic diet will just require less insulin, perhaps. Maybe it's easier for them to, to maintain a healthy blood sugar because they don't have to be as on top of it, uh, whereas somebody with, say, a similar level of, of pancreatic beta cell function um, eating a higher-carb diet needs to, to you know, modify their, their insulin dosage depending on how much they eat. Um, if they're both you know, managing that and on top of it, it doesn't matter. But in the case where, where maybe one individual is more on top of it uh, than the other, that, that person who's not dosing appropriately or not monitoring as much, maybe perhaps would do a bit better. But, but that's very speculative and very dependent on the specific case. Right. Yeah. So personalization yeah. and the management part being key. In my conversation with uh, Thomas DeLaro, we were talking about the fact that in some of Roy Taylor's research, mm -hmm. he was able to to notice that folks who had had uh, type two diabetes for four years or less, when they did the sort of very low calorie um, diet intervention that he provides, which is like eight to twelve weeks of eight hundred calories, yeah, it's like meal replacements, right. just all the way through. Yeah, and and, and the the rationale for that is to get. A, a huge calorie deficit and reduce the amount of visceral fat, the hepatic fat, the pancreatic fat. And in doing so, you restore insulin sensitivity in the liver, you um, restore beta cell function, and um, hopefully the, the downstream effect of that is better blood glucose control. But what he found was the sort of chance of someone going into remission was very much uh, determined or could be predicted by how long they had type 2 diabetes for. So if you had type 2 diabetes for a long, long time, 10 years or, or more, mu much fewer people would go into remission. And the theory there is that the there is more uh, beta cell sort of damage dysfunction that occurs over time um, beyond repair. And so I was thinking and 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 Thomas kind of threw this out there that I can see the utility of a low carb diet in the in the case of that person who just cannot restore beta cell function, which means they can't get back to producing insulin. Um, again, in the context of they're having trouble with their management of of exogenous insulin because that's always an option. Yeah. And actually something I would just add though, if someone was going to go with that low carb approach, I would really emphasize the importance of, of focusing on unsaturated fats over saturated fats as well, because you don't want to sacrifice the, you know, the, the heart health, you know, benefits of, uh, or some of the heart health benefits of managing your blood sugar by increasing your ApoB at the same time. Right. Yeah. Ideally you want to have both. Right. And, and even insulin sensitivity, if you, if you 
if you want to talk about that, yeah. the, there's plenty of data showing that when you swap saturated calories from saturated fat for an equal number of calories from unsaturated fats, you increase insulin sensitivity. Yeah. Um, and so it does it does seem like there's some resistance though from from many people in that community to shift the type of fat in the diet from a sort of bias to towards saturated fats, butter and fatty cuts of meat to unsaturated fats, nuts, seeds, fatty fish, etc. Why why do you think that that bias exists? I mean, I think part of it is preference. I think it's it's a lot easier to do a low carb diet in that way than it is to do one that's rich in, in unsaturated fats. Um, but but you know otherwise I I think it might be if you're doing keto I think it's hard to do that on a say a plant based diet. It's well, possible. I'm talking about a, a sort of Mediterranean oh, keto yeah, diet with it, olive oil and fatty fish and nuts and seeds and avocado. That's a good point. With with fish and stuff too, um, it would be a lot e- easier than like a strictly plant based approach, and it would certainly uh, be more comparable to what people are currently doing. It's just be replacing the things like the butter and the meat with more of the fish and the olive oil and whatnot. So, so yeah, I could see that. I don't want to just pick on one diet here. <laughs> so let's let's uh, switch sides here okay. for a moment. Uh, true or false? A low-fat vegan diet is the optimal way to do a plant-based diet. Um, I would generally say false. I think some people might do better that way. They might prefer it. Um, maybe they have an easier time with it, um, or just feel better. That that's fine. But generally speaking, I don't see any reason to consider that optimal or to do that over a more say moderate fat approach where you're having more nuts, seeds, and oils. Um, at the same time, I think for growing children who I've mentioned where just calorie density could be an issue and it's harder for them to get enough calories, having more of those oils and, and higher fat foods can be really beneficial. Um, I think for athletes, um, I know myself, like if, if I was doing super low, uh, and I'm not even a huge guy, but if I was doing you know super low fat, I feel like I'd be eating like crazy. Um, whereas having some more of those fats in there makes it a lot easier uh, as far as the volume of food you have to eat as well. Uh, and I've heard similar from other other athletes. So yeah, I would say um, I would say I wouldn't call it optimal necessarily, but I think some people might do better that way just out of preference. So let me push back for a moment. Yeah. I'm going to take the position of someone who would argue for a low-fat vegan diet. It's not my position, okay? Um, but I'm going to argue their position for a moment. Isn't there data to suggest that fat damages endothelial function and that the best diet for cardiovascular health, which is the leading cause of death, so we should take it seriously. The best diet is a low fat diet that promotes endothelial health, not dysfunction, and has been shown in clinical trials to reverse cardiovascular disease. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. So we'll take it one at a time. Um, as far as the oil and endothelial function. So where that largely stems from is there was one trial where, um, they took participants, they, um, measured flow mediated dilation and how they did that was they essentially put on like a blood pressure cuff pumped it up held it there i think for like five minutes or so um, and then they released it and saw how well the arteries dilated now the participants were first given oil and it was something like a quarter cup or so of oil and i believe it was with bread so it wasn't even just oil alone um, so this was a lot of oil with with some some carbohydrates as well and they uh, measured then the um 
ability of the arteries to dilate, you know, immediately and, and shortly thereafter after the meal. And it, you know, there, there was some impairment relative to, to not having had that meal. And from that, the conclusion is then while it, it's, you know, crippling the arteries is the word that's often used and it's not able to, to open up and allow blood flow. And there are a couple kind of problems with that. For one, um, oh, and it was olive oil, I'll, I'll mention. Uh, but for one, they were like that post-prandial, post-meal state, um, having any sort of endothelial function in that state has never actually been shown to translate to higher risk of cardiovascular disease. That's just pure speculation at this point that that would lead to a higher risk of having a, a cardiac event. Second, when we look at the impact of, say, olive oil consumption on fasting, um, level or fasting ability of the, the arteries to dilate. So flow mediated dilation in the morning, it actually improves function. So an argument argument can be made for olive oil actually improving artery function in the case that's actually been shown to protect against cardiovascular disease, which is those kind of baseline fasting levels. What do you think? Ability. Is that the polyphenols? I think it could be. I think that makes sense. And I also wonder if replacement matters a bit. Mind you, in that um, study, they did do a, uh, a subgroup analysis based on what was being replaced. And it seemed to be pretty consistent regardless of replacement. Um, it was even similar to omega-3 fats, which is really interesting, uh, which I thought might even be preferable. So, so it could be polyphenols. It, mm. it could be a few things. If you take the acute... So if you take the acute... Uh, endothelial cell function following olive oil and then you apply a that. large dose with bread right <laughs> and right. so you could you could you could come to the same conclusions if you were assessing how exercise also affects endothelial. i was just gonna yeah make that comparison because exercise can trigger inflammation post meal or post workout as well uh, and it can last that way for even two days depending right. on the intensity so that really illustrates if you look at something in isolation yeah so we could Theoretically, we could be very reductionist, zoom right in on exercise. I could get you to go and run, measure infl inflammation or endothelial cell function, show increase in inflammation, reduction in flow-mediated dilation, and without knowing any other information, I could on paper say exercise is going to be bad for cardiovascular health. Yeah, I, I've made that comparison on my Instagram as well a few times just because I, I think it really illustrates the point. Because I, I don't think there's any debate around the benefits of exercise mm. at this point. So, um, so yeah, it is very reductionist. Okay, and what about the claims of reversing cardiovascular disease? Yeah, so those stem from a couple um, a, a couple places. So there's the lifestyle heart trial. So this was the randomized trial by Dr. Dean Ornish. Um, it's been now, I think three decades since that. So it's been, been around for 1990. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been about that. Um, and, um, so what they did was they took, I think it was 28 participants, uh, with coronary artery disease. So you, you, uh, they had angiograms showing, um, coronary artery disease and they then randomized them to an intervention or a control group. So in the intervention group, they were put on a low-fat vegetarian diet. Now, the vegans always cite this as a vegan diet. It wasn't. They were allowed to have egg whites, and they were allowed to have some low-fat dairy. So it was not strictly vegan. Um, they were also having a, a B12 supplement. They were walking primarily for exercise. Um, they were uh, attending support groups. And then smoking cessation was a part of the protocol as well. But only one participant actually smoked at baseline. So I, I don't think smoking had a huge effect one way or another. And then the control group underwent standard care. Um, now they measured, um, uh, they essentially measured the amount of plaque in the arteries at the beginning and then after the trial, and they noted some regression. Now the 
issue with that is that the type of measurement they used was not gold standard. And for that measurement, there's a certain threshold value of difference you need to see. Right. So you need to see at least a certain amount of a of a you know decrease in, in plaque size, so to speak, in order to say that there was some reversal and it didn't meet that threshold. When you and, say it's not gold standard, just to be clear, it's not gold standard today or at the time it wasn't gold standard. So definitely not today. Now, this is a little outside my wheelhouse, but I believe some of these limitations were at least known then. Whether or not there were better methods, I'm not sure. But but some of the limitations were noted at that time. So so it, it could go either way. I won't say with super you know a lot of confidence um, either way on that. But uh, but basically, uh, it didn't meet that threshold for for regression. Um, and so it could just be due to margin of error measurement. Another thing that's noted is actually the reference artery. So you have the plaque, you know, the, 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 or sorry, the artery and you have plaque blocking a part of it. Um, and you're kind of looking at how much of the space the plaque is blocking. And what they noted was there is actually a wider space. So it could be the case the artery actually dilated and the plaque stayed the same. Like that's another way to potentially look at it. There are a lot of potential variables there. So it wasn't, oh, sorry, I knocked the, <laughs> the mic. Um, so it wasn't just- Those biceps. Yeah, oh man, that, it's that just- That gold, <laughs> it's the gold workout, workout this morning. morning has you pumped up <laughs> and we're hitting microphones. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully that wasn't too loud. Um, but uh, but yeah, so, so it wasn't a vegan diet, even though it's often cited in favor of a vegan diet. Uh, it wasn't just diet. It was a multifactorial intervention. The um, it didn't meet the you know threshold that it needed to meet to claim that there was you know reversal, um, and uh, and you know we now have have you know better ways to measure these things and actually more recently the Cordioprev trial which compared a Mediterranean diet higher in fat versus a low fat diet again not a strictly low fat vegan diet but but a low fat and pretty healthy diet based on on you know what they were eating. Um, and that found that there was actually some regression in the uh, in the um, Mediterranean diet group that was higher in fat. So, mm -hmm. so unsaturated fats. Yeah, unsaturated fat in particular. And so that is is you know another reason to to push back on the claim that it's like the only diet that's shown shown the sort of effect because it's not. And they had significantly less events as well in cardioprev. Yeah, and I think that's the big takeaway from from the Ornish trial as well is that at the five year follow up, the control group had like two and a half times the events. Yeah, so that this is a very important <laughs> yeah. point because uh, someone might think you're sort of trashing on that study. No. You're you're more talking about the interpretation yeah. of that. So, so by definition and by the, by the study design, we cannot determine the independent effects of of diet in that study period because there was. Uh, was it exercise? And yeah. There was a little bit of smoking cessation. Yeah. Um, support groups. Support there groups. Is, yeah, so there's a bunch of different things within the intervention that could be affecting the outcomes. So that's the first I think that you're, I'm just kind of feeding back to you what you said. Yeah. But that's the first thing that stops you saying a vegan diet reversed it. And then the second is the imaging. But what you're saying is it probably doesn't matter yeah, too who much. Who cares? Yeah. Because that intervention did lead to a reduction, a significant reduction in cardiovascular events. Exactly. And that's what I care about. I don't care if, you know, one marker improves if you or improves or even gets worse if you end up having a lower risk of disease. Like that's what I, I care about is do you have a lower risk of having a heart attack and or a stroke or whatever it may be? And if that's the case, then great. That's what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. What about the 
the Dr. Esselstyn study that often gets cited yeah. as well. So that was a case series um, and they had 198, I believe, participants. Um, and this was over time um, who had previously had you know heart disease and he enrolled them in their program, went on a strictly low fat plant based. This one, I believe, was strictly plant based. Um, some of the participants, uh, I, I can't recall the exact proportions, were on uh, cholesterol lowering medication as well. So they weren't just doing the diet. That's something that often gets left out. Um, and they were um, followed for a period of um, up to a few years. I, I can't recall the exact follow up time. Uh, but basically, they found that they had a much lower, the people who stuck with the program long term had a much lower risk of having a um, cardiovascular event than those who fell off the program. Now, there are multiple variables there because, well, for one, this wasn't a randomized controlled trial to begin with. They were all enrolled and, and they were comparing people who stuck with it versus people who didn't stick with it. Now, people who didn't stick with it probably are, aren't as healthy in other factors as well. Maybe they aren't exercising as, not, as much and doing other things as well. Um, and, uh, and, but at the end of the day, yeah, they, they saw a, a much lower risk and, and that's great. It's, it's some evidence. It's not the highest quality evidence. We have better evidence out there, but what often gets cited is there's one angiogram, one image of an artery of a before and after. And you see that, you know, apparently the artery just opened up, right? That the plaque kind of melted away, so to speak. Um, and if that is the case, I mean, I, I know I, I've heard of other cases from, from cardiologists where this, this sort of thing does happen on occasion and they don't know exactly why. Um, but the other thing is, even if you were to take that image from a slightly different angle, it can appear as though it's a completely new artery, right? So, so it could just depend on the imaging because these are done, you know, a year plus apart. Um, so, so that's a possibility. And at the end of the day, it was one individual out of the 198 that this image is from. Um, so I... I wouldn't put a lot of stock in that either. But again, at the end of the day, we know by even better data than that, that it lowers your risk of having a heart attack. So it doesn't matter. We don't need to sell it on this you know, image um, that, that they had in there. We can just sell it on the fact that consistently we see that people eating plant-based diets, whether strictly plant-based or mostly plant-based, have a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. And that's what we should care about. And what would you say to someone who's interested in prevention so primary prevention versus secondary prevention so a number of these trials like the the dina Wanishwan, the uh, cordioprev and leon are all secondary prevention so they're looking at how does a diet dietary intervention affect cardiovascular disease in the context of someone having existing cardiovascular disease whereas the the other and i think you've made it clear there what yeah. the evidence sort of shows yeah uh, the other question is what about preventing the disease from occurring in the first place is it the exact same sort of principles the same principles apply um for the, for the most part and we have some evidence um as far as observational research we have quite a bit uh as far as randomized trials like long-term randomized trials we don't have a ton we have things like the PREDIMED study that found a mediterranean diet whether it's rich in nuts or olive oil could lower risk um of uh, cardiovascular events um by quite a bit as well but yeah generally speaking we see that each of these individual components of a healthy diet that i talked about seem to lower risk even in primary prevention uh, and overall dietary patterns, Mediterranean diet scores, healthy plant-based diet index scores, which is basically scoring your diet according to how many healthy plants you eat. And, and then you get kind of negative points for animal foods and, and the less healthy plant foods. Um, those with the highest scores versus the lowest have a much lower risk of cardiovascular disease in the first place. Um, and this is consistent, you know, amongst all the different dietary patterns of almost all the major uh, cohorts that we have this data on. Mm, I think it, it's another scenario where it's 
it's it seems like it's difficult for some people to accept that there might be a few different ways of going about this right yeah it could be what if if you were adopting a low-fat vegan diet and and there are probably people listening to this that have had great results doing that what would you want to draw their attention to where are the potential blind spots of a low-fat vegan diet things that they could keep an eye on to optimize within that variation that they choose yeah, I, I think there's a, a couple things. So at least in the trials that have been done, like uh, Dr. Neil Bernard's trials um, with diabetes, I think protein intake tends to be suboptimal, tends to be quite low. So one thing I would emphasize is, are things like legumes, um, tofu, uh, hopefully not so fat, so low fat that you're avoiding tofu as well, but, uh, but you know, legumes, tofu, even considering a protein powder to, to help you know, you know up the, the protein intake. What do you think about the idea of someone gets older and let's say they have lower appetite and they're following a plant-based diet slowly adjusting some of their calories so they're getting a little bit less calories from say whole grains and starches and more calories from the legume food group i think that's fine i i think i mean as long as you're eating a nutritionally adequate diet as long as you're still consuming some you know a couple servings of those foods um, I don't think you need to like maximize intake of them. I think it is probably more important to resistance train um, to eat those legumes for their nutri- nutrient density and protein because it is your main protein source in that sort of a diet. Um, and and I, I think that can be totally suitable. I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Why the concern with low protein? From a health point of view, what are you concerned by what do you what do you think increasing protein will help protect someone against so you know one of the issues with aging is that we just absorb less protein to begin with um so we have we have issues absorbing as much which is why some experts will recommend higher protein intake as we age um and then for you know helping prevent things like sarcopenia along with resistance training that is the takeaway is that resistance training is number one protein second to that um so resistance training uh, helping maintain bone mineral density particularly in that at-risk population especially postmenopausal women that that's one of the areas where we've seen the biggest uh, effects um that would be the reason is just to help maintain mobility quality of life you know a reduced risk of frailty uh, and then we also have a meta-analysis from a couple of years ago um looking at uh it was like 31 cohorts over 700,000 participants or, or something along those, it might have been even more um looking at protein intake and mortality and the highest protein intake and specifically highest plant protein intake was associated with a lower risk of mortality relative to lower intakes. Um, And so I think we have a good reason to emphasize protein intake, especially in those people who are at risk of consuming too little, which would be those eating a like low fat Mm plant-based diet. The resistance training piece, um, I find very interesting. I think we've spoken about this before, but there does seem to be at the moment, a a real and i i appreciate the importance of protein i think it's important Um, but there seems to be this kind of obsession with protein particularly animal protein and a common theme or rhetoric that i see currently is around falls and falls being i think there have been claims um people saying it's the number one cause of death people age 65 and over yeah so so if we're doing true or false, I'll say false. And that's because <laughs> where, where that comes from is, um, uh, at least where we've traced it back to, is um, so according to the uh, CDC, CDC or World Health Organization? I CDC. Yeah, that was the CDC data we were talking about. Um, so according to the CDC, the uh, well, number one cause of death was cardiovascular disease. 
the um, then unintentional injuries made up 2.7% of the total risk of death or causes of death uh, in that age group. Now, of those unintentional deaths, falls was number one. So it's not that falls were the number one cause of death, period. It was that of that 2.7% of the deaths, it was the number one cause. And so it gets... Um, it Which gets, is super important to understand. Yeah. Because as you said, 25% of deaths were cardiovascular disease. Yeah. Well, that was heart attacks, actually. Oh, it was heart attacks. Because then you add, when you add in stroke, yeah. type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's, and cancer, it's over 50%. Yeah. Um, but this becomes important when you're thinking about your food selection. Because if you're making the claim that falls are the number one cause of death of people aged over 65, and then you're assuming that the primary reason people are having falls and breaking bones is because of a lack of protein. Well, that could be argued yeah. on its own because yeah. there are a number of co contributors, right? Yeah, yeah. One Medi being medications, sedentary uh, lifestyle. Vision, like all sorts of, yeah. Um, what someone could be making a, a decision to include, say, more animal foods in their diet to negate the effect of falls while at the same time worsening their cardiometabolic health risk, which yeah. is what they're most likely going to die of. Yeah, I know that that's the, that's the big problem. And, uh, and it's always, yeah, it's always specific to like promoting the animal protein as well. You know, it's always like you need the animal protein to prevent your risk of falls and, and yeah. How much protein is optimal and what's sub suboptimal? Um, so I would say a good target, uh, and I'm open to this shifting a little bit depending on, on evidence, if, if better evidence comes out, but I, I tend to focus on about 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. Um, I think especially in that older age group, uh, that's a really good target, and I think it's also great to start building those habits earlier on and, and to aim for that sort of target. Um, while, again, you know, resistance training or, or doing some sort of physical activity is going to be great to do on top of that. Um, suboptimal, certainly below the RDA, I think you're, you're definitely too low, which is 0 0.8 grams per, per kilogram. But I would say, you know, anywhere below that, that 1.2 could potentially be suboptimal relative to that 1.2 plus. Um, and then any benefits you're going to get from 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram are you're primarily going to be amongst strength athletes and aren't massive. There's something there and that can add up over, you know, you're training for 10, 15 years that adds up, but it's not like going to be earth shattering for the average person. What's that meta-analysis? We'll put it on Tagawa. screen yeah, with, the, with the two from two last graphs. Year. And it makes it really clear that when it comes to strength, like the greatest stimulus you can eat as much protein yeah. as you want, but if yeah. the resistance training is not there, you're not getting much increase in strength. Yeah, and so that was on, for the figures, if you have it on the screen here, on the right side was uh, for protein without resistance training. And it's like this tiny bump in, in um, it was like lean mass, right? Just tiny, tiny bump in, in that. Uh, whereas on the left side where you have it with resistance training, you see that it's like way up here where where just resistance training alone was great. And then as you go from the low protein to high protein, you'll see further you know, improvements. Yeah. And, and the other very notable observation, which comes back, so you, you're talking about 1.2 grams per yeah. kilogram. When you look in the context of people doing resistance training, yeah. so by far resistance training clearly is, is, is the most important stimulus here. And then what's interesting is if you compare 1.2 grams per kilo to say 1.6, and there's a lot of argument over these numbers online, that's really just like squeezing the last bit of water yeah. out yeah. of the towel. Right, yeah. the 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 sort of greatest magnitude of effect comes from adding resistance training. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. I don't think there's any debate around that. 
True or false? Most people should avoid gluten. Gluten is inflammatory and it causes leaky gut, otherwise known as intestinal permeability. Um, so I say false. Um, now, there is about a percent of the population. It'll vary a little bit depending on the population, but we'll say roughly a percent of the population who has celiac disease, which is an autoimmune condition that can be dangerous, can even be life-threatening if you're consuming gluten. So in those cases, if you're having gut issues, one of the first things you'll often be tested for on your blood test is a marker called TTG, uh, trans, or tissue transglutaminase, um, which is uh, testing for one of the antibodies that's present in celiac disease. So, um, so you test for that rule it in or rule it out to figure that out. And, and if it uh, isn't celiac, then, then that's probably not a problem. Now, there's also another, um, we'll say roughly 6% of the population. There are different estimates. I'll, I'll give you the link to this particular paper uh, that cites about 6% of the population who have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So it's not that celiac disease. It's not life-threatening, but this can lead to you know gut symptoms and, and things like that that just aren't comfortable. Um, and in that group of individuals as well, yeah, avoiding gluten might be beneficial. But then for the you know over 90% of the population who don't have either of those issues, there's just no good reason to avoid gluten. And in fact, gluten-free diets have been associated with a high risk of type 2 diabetes uh, in the, uh, I think that was the Nurses Health and Health Professionals follow-up studies uh, as well. So, um, and that's probably because when you're eating gluten-free, you tend to eat more of the refined, less of the whole uh, grain carbohydrates because a lot of the gluten-free products are made from the, the refined grains as well and, and whole grains can be protective. We can't talk about gluten without talking about lectins, <laughs> can we? Uh, lectins certainly gets a lot of airtime since plant paradox, I think. Yeah. Plant yeah. Par- paradox certainly um, was a it was a New York Times bestselling book, I think. It's become a household name and th- one of the, I guess, the thesis of the book is that lectins are causing leaky gut again and as a consequence leads to inflammation and all of these different inflammatory related conditions so true or false lectins cause leaky gut false i don't even know where that claim can come from i've never actually heard that specific claim it's usually about lectins poisoning us or being toxic um but yeah, the the one thing about lectins, though, to understand is that so lectins are most concentrated in, in you know certain plant foods like legumes in particular, and and especially the lectins that could potentially be toxic are concentrated in certain legumes like kidney beans. The thing is, when we cook them, you destroy the lectins to the point that they're not even detectable, and it doesn't take a lot of cooking either. Um, and so if you're cooking legumes to the point that they're actually edible, so they're soft, that you're going to eat them, uh, then the lectins are destroyed anyway. And if you're buying canned, they're already cooked, so it's already taken care of. Um, so really, it's just an issue of improperly prepared legumes. Um, and there are some cases of raw kidney bean poisoning where they're undercooked or raw. Uh, there was one analysis from the UK over 13 years. There were 50 reported suspected, not even confirmed cases of lectin poisoning. And one argument I've heard recently that I thought was just awesome, so I want to bring it up, um, is that this is an issue of improperly prepared food, legumes, and it's often coming from more of the animal-based diet crowd. Well, what's the risk of improperly prepared meat? 
right? If we look at the UK again, in 2014, there was an analysis that found in a single year, poultry alone was responsible for 250,000 cases of foodborne illnesses and 1,000 hospitalizations. If we look at US data, um, salmonella from poultry alone, so forget about other foodborne illnesses, but just salmonella is responsible for almost 100 deaths per year. Why not point in that direction if you're going to talk about this, you know, specific case of not preparing your food properly? Um, whereas like in reality, legume consumption, if you look at, um, you know, any of the recent, there's a couple of meta-analyses that have come out in the last couple of years, one looking at cardiovascular disease and one looking at total mortality, and both found that higher legume consumption is associated with a lower risk. So do people need to use a pressure cooker or are their canned beans okay? Canned is okay. Canned gets, gets rid of the lectins anyway. It's already, it's already been cooked. It's already been taken care of. You don't have to worry about it. Even boiling, you don't have to worry about it if you're boiling to the point that they're soft again. You squish it with a fork. You know, that's the point where you're going to be eating it. The lectins won't be there anymore. What's well, a pretty easy test? Yeah. Think about the texture. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'd know if you were having a an uncooked. Bean. I know. I, I don't think it'd be very pleasant. <laughs> no. Don't try that. All right, Doctor Nagra, this has been uh, excellent. Thank you again for sitting down with me. I know that the audience is very appreciative of your time and everything that you're doing. You haven't finished your milk, so I'll, I will finish it. You will finish yeah. it. I will, I'll make you finish yeah. it. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, thanks for doing this and hopefully we can do it again sometime soon. Continue the conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's good to finally connect in person after like uh, two years of talking almost like every day. A thousand, more than a thousand. <laughs> How many messages do you think? Oh, had I don't know. It's going on 30 a day probably. I don't know. <laughs> it's yeah. And it's WhatsApp. It's Twitter. It's yeah. Instagram. It's too hard to keep up. Yeah. Thanks, dude. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.